You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. We're going to be continuing our sermon series through the letters of John, which we started last week. And, um, you know, on, the, on that note, speaking of letters, this, this week I received an email saying that I, I got a letter from one of our compassion children. Her name is Mary Jane. And... Um, which is always nice to receive a letter from, from her and, and to see how she's doing. And then I started to think about how I'm going to respond to that letter and what my motivation will be to respond in responding to her letter. And, and, and I was thinking about it, how I want her to walk away from reading a letter that we would write to her. I want her to walk away from it with joy, with happiness and, and encouragement, right? So, so in the letters, we, we try to encourage her. In the past, this is what we've done. We've tried to encourage her. We try to tell her that, you know, we're proud of her and, and, and we're excited that she's doing well in school and in church and, and we'll write some encouraging Bible verses and, and remind her that we're praying for her and make sure that she knows that we're rooting for her and supporting her. Again, we want her to be happy. We want her to walk away from reading these letters from us feeling joyful. And as we talked about last week, John has had a similar motivation in his letters. As he writes in verse 4, he wants their joy to be complete. He wants them to be joyful. He wants them to know the joy of being in fellowship with God, <coughs> excuse me, with God and one another. So, you know, if we had to guess, if we just stopped at verse 4, it's like he wants their joy to be complete. If we had to guess what was coming next in his letter, I'd probably guess, you know, it'd be something along the same lines as, as, as the way that I write to my sponsor child, right? He, he wants to you know, probably encourage them and, and lift them up and, and build them up and tell them how awesome they are and how proud he is of them. But as we'll find out, that's not the way the letter goes. Instead, he immediately talks about sin, their sin. By the drop of mood in this room, I can tell there's nothing joyful about the subject of sin, is there? And so we have to we have to ask, you know, well, at least I ask, why would John immediately go from the subject of their joy of wanting them to their joy to be complete all of a sudden to the subject of sin? Why would he go from joy to sin? Why would he do that? And while my guess is that it's because he doesn't want their joy to be superficial. He doesn't want their joy to be superficial. He wants their joy to be complete. And we're going to figure out what that means as we read and discuss the next passage. So if you want to turn with me to 1 John 1 verse 5, we're going to be reading all the way to chapter 2 verse 2. So 1 John 1 verse 5 to chapter 2 verse 2. John writes to them, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, 
I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed to be able to gather together with one another, to come before you in your presence and and read through your word. And so I pray this morning that that the word won't fall flat, Lord God, but that you'd um, write it in our hearts and in our minds, Lord God, that, that it would have its full effect within us this morning. I pray that you would humble us and allow us to receive and, and to understand and to respond in full. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I spent a portion of my, of my high school years in a more charismatic church setting. And uh, I did this because that's the sign for being charismatic, I guess. Um, <laughs> one of the buzzwords that always come up in, the, in that setting was the word revival, right? We've probably all heard that word revival. That's one of the buzzwords that always comes up in a charismatic setting and in other settings too, but, you know, a lot in that setting. And, and everyone here probably has a different idea of what that word means, what the word revival means and what it looks like when it occurs. But whatever your opinion about revival is, I'm sure that we can all agree that at its core, a revival historically and biblically, has been a time of restoration and reconciliation between God and his people. A time of restoration and reconciliation between God and his people. Psalm 85 verse 6 is a request for this very thing when it says, Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? In other words, revival at its foundation is an an awakening, an awakening of the people of God. Or rather, in our case, a wake-up for the body of Christ to come back to God. It's, it's when a community of believers, you know, simultaneously together, turn from the world and place their affection and praise on God. That's revival. And, and the reason I bring that up is because in this letter that John's writing, he's basically calling this particular Christian community into revival. He's calling them to revival. And don't get me wrong, he's not talking about all about fake revivals, all the silly stuff and, and conjured up hype that comes with them. He's not, that's not what he's talking about. He's calling them to spiritually wake up to the truth. To come back into authentic fellowship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. To know the fullness of joy that comes with knowing the Lord and living for him and being in community with other believers. And remember, John, he knows a thing or two about revivals. He knows a thing or two about being in fellowship with God. He knows what he's talking about. He was there at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And I know that many of us here, myself included, would like to see this kind of revival. This kind of renewal in our hearts and lives. To see the Holy Spirit and, and stir within us and enlarge our passion for the glory of God and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. To see our joy made complete as, as we grow in relationship with him. You know, when, when I put it like that, revival sounds pretty good. So we have to ask, you know, how does, how does revival happen? How do, how do we get there? How can we see Revival in this church and, and in our hearts. 
Many people have asked that question. And many people have done a lot of things to try and conjure up or force revivals. Tent meetings, prophetic conferences, prayer tunnels, 24-hour worship services, praying over the graves of dead revivalists to soak up their anointing. I'm not kidding. People have tried that. Because I think some people are so desperate sometimes to, 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 to conjure up or reenact or experience revivals or to see you know, big movements of, and signs and wonders and whatever else that they seem to be willing to try anything to make it happen. Like they're trying to figure out the, the key or, or, the, or the secret code or the secret pathway in, into creating this experience. And so, of course, the attempts range from well-meaning to just plain weird and wacky which is possibly the place where the Christian community John's writing to is currently at. But the ironic thing is, the road to revival is, is no secret. There's no, there's no grand formula or, or new age mantra or, or perfect prayer that has to be put in place in order to see the Holy Spirit revive our hearts. And of course, that's unfortunately the problem with many who want revival because the way to revival isn't actually exciting or or hyped up or even very desirable for us because it's often very hard to do. And John shows us the way. He writes that, that for them to experience and live in renewed fellowship with God, for them to see revival, it has to start with repentance of sin. That's the way to revival. That's the way it's always been and will always be. Repentance of sin. In fact, one of the more popular revivals which happened in the 18th century, which we refer to as the Great Awakening, you may have heard of it, it saw its climactic moment during a sermon by, by a pastor named Jonathan Edwards, who simply but bluntly called sinners to repentance. When we look in the Bible, when Jonah was sent to Nineveh by God, and, and he finally ended up there after that big storyline in Wales and whatnot. He told the city, what? To repent of their sin. And they did, and God had mercy over them and blessed them. They saw revival. When Nehemiah was charged with restoring the city of David, the Hebrew people were brought to tears and filled with cries of repentance as they were reminded of the law and the word of God that they'd forsaken. And in the midst of that, God blessed them and restored them as a nation. They saw revival. When John the Baptist came on the scene as a forerunner for Jesus, his message for revival was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus started his ministry, his message was the same, repent. Luke 5.32, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And on the day of Pentecost... As the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus' disciples, Peter preached the first sermon. And in it he declared, Acts 2, 38-39, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's pretty simple. If we want to see revival in this church, in our country, in your heart, if you're feeling distant from God or disconnected with the Holy Spirit, the solution 
starts with repentance. In fact, revival not only starts with it, it continues with it as we walk with an attitude of repentance and surrendering to Jesus. And that's what repentance is, right? It's turning from the world, turning from our sin, and turning back to Jesus. Repent means to turn. And again, this isn't a secret. It's a, it's a call that's been proclaimed by the prophets and apostles for thousands of years. Repent, turn back to God. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Let's read that again. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. That's a promise for revival that comes through turning from our sin and surrendering to God. And as I've said, this is basically the same thing that John's writing to this, this particular Christian community. Right? He's saying that since God is light, since God is holy, the only way to have fellowship with him is to quit living in the darkness. And the solution for that is to come to the foot of the cross, humbly admit their sin, turn from their wicked ways, surrender to God. And the result of that, as he reminds them, isn't negative. We're not called to, to reveal our sin and repentance so that God can, can punish us or, or laugh at us or, or shame at us. The result of repentance is always a positive one. The call to repentance always comes with a promise of grace. Verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to change us from all unrighteousness. And again, 1 John 2, 1 to 2 says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus Christ has already bore our sins at the cross. So when we humbly confess, we can be confident that God will be quick to forgive. We can be confident in that promise of grace. We can be confident that the atoning work of Jesus Christ will have its full effect on us and within us. But the point that John's making here is that we do need to acknowledge our sin. And we do need to confess it. The problem that seems to have caused this particular Christian community from having an attitude of repentance toward God seems to be um, wrong doctrine or wrong theology and that the false prophets that were there were, were within the church seem to be implying that they either didn't need to repent anymore or possibly that they're no longer even capable of sinning anymore because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've heard that theology before. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and he didn't sin. So now that we are, we won't sin. But John's correcting them here by saying, no. They're still capable of sinning as Christians. And they're actually in the middle of it right now. In fact, they might think they have fellowship with God, but again, how could they? If he's light and they're walking in darkness. 
Right? How could you possibly have fellowship with a holy God if you're not set apart for him? You know, if you're, if you're practicing idolatry, if you're, if you're stealing, if you're harboring bitterness against others, if you're not loving one another, if you're, if you're living according to the world, if, if you're still in sin. That's what he's saying. If you're still in sin, how can you fellowship with God? And then he says, if they disagree with that, and, and if, they, if they say they don't sin or, or, or haven't sinned or can't sin, he says they're not only dangerously deceiving themselves, but they're actually implying that Jesus is a liar, and therefore his truth, his word, definitely isn't in them. So bottom line, then, it's, it's their sin. It's their refusal to admit their sin that's separating them from fellowship with God. And so again, the solution before anything else. This is why it starts at the beginning, because this is, has to happen before anything else can happen. The solution is for them to both admit their sin and then turn from it. But that's the hard part, right? Confessing. Getting on our knees in prayer. At admitting what we've done. At admitting that we need a Savior. That really, that really hurts and cuts to the core of our pride. It's humbling. It's, it's uncomfortable. Emotionally painful even sometimes to dig that out. It's no surprise they'd be so willing to believe someone who says, oh, no, you don't have to repent anymore. Right? That sounds a lot better than, than having to come to the end of ourselves. But we do, and it's necessary. And, and in the end, though, it leads to joy, to revival, to fellowship with God. When I was around 12, my mom made me sand this old wooden dresser that she wanted to restore and repaint. And since I was a well-behaved child who always did what his mom asked, oh, most of you think I'm telling the truth. That's nice. I was a pretty good kid, I think. Anyways, uh, I, I started sanding this dresser, right? I, I had the, the sanding block and the sandpaper, and I started sanding this, this dresser. But unfortunately, I wasn't making very good progress because it was a really old dresser. And, and so there was, you know, wood chips were flying off of it, wood splinters were, were coming off, and, and I had to really press hard on the sanding block to, to smooth out certain areas. And, and at one point, I was pressing so hard, just trying to sand, you know, so hard that the block slipped out from underneath me and, and my hand kind of slipped over the dresser. And, and, and as a result, this, this small yet sizable wood fragment wedged underneath the nail of my thumb, like all the way to the end and broke off, like all the way to where the, you know, the nail meets the skin. So, of course, you know, it was excruciating. Um, and, the, and the pain was just throbbing, and it, it, was, it was brutal, and I was probably screaming. And I tried to get it out myself. I couldn't get it out. My, you know, I tried to get the tweezers in there, and it, was, it hurt way too much. I couldn't get it out myself. Unfortunately, my mom had left to go to the store or something, so she wasn't there. She couldn't help me take it out either, which meant I had to leave it in there for a while. So it was, it was there for, in there for a couple hours. And... Um, 
The thing is, though, you know, after a couple hours, I had warm water and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, the pain kind of, the initial pain subsided, right? That throbbing pain, it kind of went away. And, and after, after, you know, as the day went on, it kind of only hurt when I touched it or bumped it on something. So I kind of got used to it. I kind of got used to it being there, and I just compensated for it by using my left hand for things and, and whatnot. Long story short, though, my mom ended up dragging me to the clinic where, to my dismay and horror, the doctor used this sharp tweezer tool, uh, shoved it underneath my nail, and he grabbed it and he pulled it out. And uh, that was one of the most painful things I'd ever experienced at that point in my life. And if I knew how much it was going to hurt, I probably would have chose to just leave it in there. Just, just leave it in there. I don't, I don't care. But the amazing thing is that once the doctor pulled it out, the pain was basically gone. I mean, there was still some lingering discomfort because of sensitive skin under there, right? But honestly, it felt fine. And then when I woke up the next day, it was like it didn't even happen. And this is almost exactly what repentance is like, isn't it? To come before a holy God and, and confess our sin is like, is like digging out a giant sliver. It can hurt mentally, emotionally, spiritually, especially when we've become so used to carrying it around. It's almost become part of us. This sin, right? And, and, and we do that. We, we try to hide our sin or we just get used to carrying the burden of it or we may even just start to accept it as part of who we are, as part of our identity. And so to allow Jesus to take a hold of it and have it ripped out, that can be a painful and sorrowful process. Of course, it's, it's definitely tempting to just, just keep our sin hidden and not have to go through that process. But the truth is that after it's done, after we've gone through that often difficult process of humble confession, that's where freedom is. That's where grace is. That's where forgiveness is. There's blessing and there's restoration and there's joy. Psalm 32, 1 to 5 reflects this perfectly. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see what's happening there? When he he, he held in and when he tried to hide his sin, when he kept silent, it was too much to bear. But then when he honestly confessed and when he uncovered his transgressions before God, that's when he was freely forgiven. That's when he experienced blessing. And so again, I think we often try to hide our sins from God, maybe to avoid punishment or or to avoid shame. But the exact opposite occurs when we lay our sins before God. Because Jesus has already taken the punishment. Jesus has already taken the shame upon himself at the cross. In other words, there's a joy in repentance. 
if we truly understand that, we wouldn't be reluctant to go to repentance. If we truly understood that there's a joy in repentance. As David proclaimed in Psalm 51, verse 8, Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And then later in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. About this, Gavin Ortland, the pastor writes, It can seem strange that repentance can produce both grief and joy. That David's bones can be crushed and yet rejoice. But this is consistent with the flavor of the gospel, which achieves life through death, joy through suffering, good through evil. We might say that repentance is to joy what Good Friday is to Easter, that necessary path of agonizing, self-abasing death, by which alone we emerge into light and freedom beyond what we could have ever imagined. There's joy in repentance. Yes, it comes with grief of confession. But ultimately, it's joy because it leads us to the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. It leads us to revival. So, if you're feeling the weight and guilt of your sin, if you're holding it in because you don't want to face it or because you think you're too far gone, because you don't want to feel ashamed of what you've done, or if you're feeling distant from God this morning, or if your passion for his name and the proclamation of the gospel is kind of dwindling within you, if you find it hard to really engage in worship, or in prayer, or in the word, if you're finding it hard to listen to the Spirit, if you're finding it hard to love one another, don't be tempted to ignore that. In the same vein, don't be tempted to blame others or make excuses for your relationship with God. Take ownership. Don't harden your hearts this morning. Take ownership. Repent. Repent. In fact, as John writes, if anyone says they're without sin, they're deceiving themselves. Remember, he's talking to believers here. In other words, no one is excluded from this. No, no one is perfect or without sin. We're covered in Jesus' righteousness, but we're not Jesus. We all need to come before the cross in repentance daily. We all need to walk with the attitude of repentance daily. Myself included. And again, yes, it can be difficult. It can be humbling. But again, we have to remember that, that it isn't a chore. It's a gift of grace that we've been given. If we really think about it, the fact that, that Jesus has given us this way to be restored and unburdened of our sin, that's a miraculous opportunity for us. So again, we might avoid it because we don't want to feel shame. But the truth is Jesus is calling us to it and giving this, this opportunity so that we no longer have to feel shame at all. So that we can be free. As it says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Repentance, repentance brings us to that truth. Which means that whatever pain or humility that, that, it, that it might take for us to be able to acknowledge the weight of our sin... 
The same sin that held Jesus upon the cross, it's worth it. Whatever, whatever discomfort or humility it takes for us to, to turn from the world and, and confess our sin in prayer before God, our, our lusts, our, our, our idolatry, our, our addictions, our, our selfishness and, and our pride, our bitterness and, and whatever else you're harboring within, whatever discomfort it takes to, to, to reveal those things and to dig those things up, it's worth it. Because after we do, by the grace of Jesus, all those sins that, that, that we've revealed and confessed, they're removed. They're forgotten. As it says, we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We're cleansed of all unrighteousness. And our fellowship with God is restored. Psalm 51 verse 7 says, Wash me, wash me, and I will be white as snow. And to repent is to cry out to God at the foot of the cross, Wash me. Wash me in the blood of Christ. Cleanse me. Restore me. Revive my soul. And he does. And he will. In closing, I'm going to read from 1 John 1, 9 again. This promise that we have in repentance is as if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world.